Let's pray. God, I thank you for for drawing your people here. I thank you for I thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches. I thank you that your Holy Spirit comforts. Your Holy Spirit exhorts. I thank you for the helper that you gave us. I thank you for the promise that you gave us of that someday we will be fully redeemed from the fallen bodies that we live in and the flesh. But at this point that we are empowered to live for you, holy and righteous, and to be found that way when you return. I thank you for that. That you empower us and enable us to do that. God, I ask you to teach us, teach us truth today. Teach us from your word. Teach us what it means to be your sons and daughters and what the inheritance we have as saints. Thank you that we can stand on the truth of your word and we can stand firm in our faith. Jesus, most of all, I thank you for enabling that and allowing that, allowing us even to speak to God. So teach us for your name's sake, for your glory, that your name would be glorified, that we would have a better understanding and a fuller appreciation, that we would worship you, that we would reverence you, that we would fear you, that we would love you, as you call us to. Amen. So, Second Corinthians. You guys think I'm stuck in Second Corinthians, I think, but chapter 1, but I'm really not. Actually, in studying this week, um, it was a, another sweet week. There's sometimes, I, not sometimes, always during the week, I'm, I greatly appreciate you guys uh, holding me accountable to study because it's a sweet time and I'm blessed by it. So um, this week was no different. It was it was great. It seems like some weeks, like I've said before, are spent intensely in uh, in looking at it. The Greek or Hebrew, depending on New or Old Testament, and, and seeing what God really had to say to us. And I'm I'm <clears throat> absolutely convinced of the protection and inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit in writing down uh, what we have here is a foundation for our belief in God, and and it's certainly worth um, going hard after, as far as what did He really mean, what did He really say, what was He saying to us, and 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 I find that you really can't go after it too hard. And one of the things that, that sometimes, um, I believe there's some very, very good translations out there of the original language that was written, inspired by God. And I think that there, obviously that was in Greek, and I don't read Greek or Hebrew, but um, I probably, probably butcher it terribly when I try to speak the words. But um, there are some very good direct translations of what, was said. The the weakness comes oftentimes is that um, even within a period of a few years we end up with cultural definitions and understanding of words, and and it's very easy to extrapolate those into the Bible um, when we read it, and and that's a dangerous thing to do oftentimes because sometimes those cultural changing and understandings are quite different from what was originally expressed. So 
I find it helpful. Sometimes it, there is, really isn't a change. Um, sometimes there's not a lot. I find weeks like this, this week, for some reason, I was just relentlessly in the Strong's Concordance, looking up the Greek words and, and in my Vines Dictionary, looking up the definitions of the words. Um, not that there was profound distinction from what the words are, are stated, at least in a good translation like the New American Standard or something, but there was, there was, uh, um, there certainly was greater and fuller and richer inspiration in those words. So, at, at the end of it, I, you know, this week was, the intention was, and in, in the beginning of the week when I began studying, it seemed like God was really leading me towards um, the end of the chapter. And, and then as the week closed in, and yesterday and, and Friday night we're studying, there's, Friday night was tough because my girls kept me out till like after like one o'clock or something, you know, doing it. So, but actually it was a sweet time with the girls out there. So that was, that was good. I think they would have stayed there killing stuff till later, but, um, it was, it was a good time. But my studying in the last couple of days kind of went back reflecting on what we talked about last week and, and kind of filling some things out. So I'd like to, let's, let's read, uh, first Corinthians one. Or I mean, Second Corinthians chapter one, because I I uh, follow along and listen. There's actually a couple of places I'd like to read the first chapter of Second Corinthians. Um, there's some stuff in in Romans eight that is very very parallel to it, um, and there's also hopefully we'll get to in First John um, some very parallel stuff. So the, 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 there's always a a danger like I said before, of, especially with Paul, of, of taking a word or, or, or uh, taking a, a verse and pulling it out and saying, giving it meaning culturally. Um, it's very important to read in the context of what Paul was saying. Um, the word does not contradict itself, ever. Um, it's, I, and I'm confident of this, this canon of Scripture or this, this group of books that are, that are held in what we hold as our Bible, um, I'm confident in their inspiration by God. And, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not a different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and he doesn't change from Matthew to Revelation in the New Testament. Um, different writers, that's one of the phenomenal proofs of the Bible, is when you, you look at the unity and, and um, lack of contradiction from Moses uh, you know, through John writing Revelation. It's a pretty profound deal. So what's really important is to write, to read in context what he has to say. Um, let the Bible define the Bible um, and, and learn what God has to say to us through the Bible. So it's, it's very important to, when something seems contrary or seems odd or hard to understand, it, it's oftentimes very, very informative to Look at how that's talked about in other places in Scripture. Sometimes the word is only used one time in, in like the New Testament. And, and then it's important to see what that word specifically was saying. Um, but let, let's, let's read 2 Corinthians and, and there's, a, there's a few things that are urgent on my heart to try to fill out. One of the things we talked about last week um, was the affliction and suffering and, and balancing that with comfort in the word comfort. In the first eight verses, again, he used ten times he uses the word 
um, comfort. Okay? And I think eight times he uses the word afflictions or suffering. So, this is a pretty strong statement that Paul is making here. And we talked about it last week in what life really looks like and, you know, how that balances with our life because, again, we, we want to too often, um, share an American gospel of prosperity. Share an American gospel of give your life to God and He'll make it better and all your troubles will go away and, and pass all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Absolute true verse, sound verse. But understanding uh, that, that we are called, Jesus said that if you share in my sufferings, um, that you'll have eternal life. That's a major statement. And, and Paul is saying here again, when he contrasts and talking about the Christian life having suffering and affliction in it, it's important to understand those words. And, and so bef- before we read it, I just ask you to keep in mind that the word for, for comforter is paraclesis. And that's a word, the same word that is used to, to name the Holy Spirit at times is the comforter. Okay, this is a, this is a strong word. It's actually the same word for exhortation, too. An exhorter. You know, we tend to think of uh, exhortation as some type of, because it's oftentimes in the context of reproof, correction, and exhortation, right? So we tend to think it must be ex- somehow you're reproving or correcting or exhorting. But it, it's the same word. Comforter and, and exhorter are the same word. Um, and it's the same word, like I said, used for, for helper is in the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's important to think about that. And, and basically what it means is a calling to one side, one who comes alongside. Okay? That's what exhorting means too. Um, it means to come alongside that person, um, in their situation, in their trouble. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, right? Is, is, if we're born again, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. If we're, if we're in the pursuit of God, in seeking God, and we are not born again yet, um, which I believe is probably the state of most, um, that, that we are in the pursuit of God, the Holy Spirit still comes alongside to teach, to illuminate, um, to help. To help what? To help us understand. To get us out of all circumstances and all trouble? Obviously not. The need for a comforter, the need for someone coming alongside, implies um, that there will be suffering, that there will be affliction. And that word is philipsis. And it's a, it's a, there's a group of words that have very much the same meaning. Um, suffering and affliction have very much the same meaning. So is mourning. Mourning has, has, is right there. And they're all a bunch of Greek words that I won't um, make you laugh by my pronunciation of. But the words, the words all in context mean um, that which befalls one. It's tribulation um, to press against. You know, it, the, the, the primary definition in Vines would, would, is partially that which comes upon believers from without. Okay? Something that presses against the person from without. It refers to sufferings due to pressure of circumstances or the antagonism of persons. Okay? So, when you look at the sufferings of Jesus, what, 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 how did that look? What, what was that? Um, was that because he was sick? Or was that because he was 
poor, or was that because he didn't have a place to lie his head? Were those the sufferings of Jesus, or were the sufferings due to the pressure of circumstances or the antagonism of persons? The suffering that Jesus, um, in the suffering that he lived out on this earth, was primarily due to people coming against him. Okay, so in, in that that's what the word implies. I, I this isn't just a Paul concept. I mean, we kind of look at Paul at times, and man, that boy had a rough life after he gave his life to God. You know, after the road to Damascus, there's a side of him that that physically, um, and it came down to physical abuse, obviously, stonings, left for dead, drownings, shipwrecked. Um, Whipped, you know, he was given 39 lashes and 40, again, is to kill you. Um, they gave you 39 because that was just short of death. And Paul was beaten um, to the point of death, left for dead several times. Um, why? Because he'd done something wrong? No, because he was shared in the sufferings of Jesus, because he spoke the truth. And the religious community hated him for it. Um, and, and he says that we are to share in his suffering. Jesus said this too. Let's read this um, and, and try, try to just listen and move past the redundancy of Paul because I think in, in our language it's sometimes hard and the way we speak it's sometimes hard to understand Paul and, and the way that he tends to repeat himself um, in order to make a point. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is his Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Acacia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, Paraclesis, who comforts us, who comes alongside us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to come alongside, excuse me for interjecting that definition of comfort, so that we may be able to come alongside those who are in any affliction with the, with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted for by God. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also the comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. And salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Okay? You're comforted. We are able, we're come alongside you. Why? Because you have need of us to come alongside you. Right? It's effective in the patient enduring of the, the these people, the people in Corinth, the, their patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, which Paul also suffered, and the people with him. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharings of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. He didn't just have a little problem and couldn't pay his bill. He despaired of life. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. 
you also joining and helping us through your prayers. This is a really important um, description of what we should do, what, what happens, what is the purpose of praying, what is the purpose of praying each other, for each other. So, <clears throat> consider this, because this is a very strong statement about <clears throat> excuse me, praying for those who have afflictions, who have sufferings, who have coming against them. Okay? You also joining. So God, he says, God will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope will deliver us. And you also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Okay? For the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. So, do prayers have an effect? Why do we pray? Why do we pray for each other? That's often a question, and, and sometimes it's something that I must struggle with. I, I start to pray and I think, well, I don't need to inform God. I mean, God is already quite well aware of any circumstance that might have or any need I might have. In fact, God is much more aware and cares far more. So why do I even pray? What am I doing? What am I accomplishing? And this is a, this is a very important understanding because we are called to pray. And this is a, this is universal throughout the Bible. And we're called to pray. And there's tremendous power in prayer. And there's tremendous effect by the fervent prayers of a righteous man. Okay? Or woman. Okay? That, and, and so what, what happens in that process? He says, you are joining in helping us through your prayers. Paul's suffering. He's going through affliction. He's at the point of death. And it says, you are joining in helping us through your prayers. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Okay? Why does God call us to pray? So that we share in God's work. So that we share in God's love. If we did not engage, if we did not cry out to God, I mean, I, I could give you example after example of, of just, you know, I, I have absolute assurance in that God answers prayer. And I could give you absolute example. I mean, your, your comment this morning. I mean, it wasn't very long ago. When there was no little kids in here. There was a bunch of old people. Now a bunch of the old people have left. But there's a whole bunch of little kids. I mean, there was none. Literally, none. You know, and what was there? Well, I didn't count, but what was there? Ten little boys or something this morning? You know? Little children that are the next generation to be raised up as godly warriors for the kingdom. I mean, this is a sweet thing. You know, there was, and there's some girls, too, that are... Not here today. There's people who are gone. One, one, and one more on the way. You know, doing it. Well, we don't know what the other one on the way is. That would be a big statement, wouldn't it? But this is a sweet thing. And why did this happen? Well, I give it direct credit. We prayed. I mean, there was no kids, and and I, I remember on a Wednesday night praying that God would bring children. My wife particularly, and she's a little woman of faith that that uh, is a bit of a prayer warrior and, and is in the middle of it. And she, you know, one night was just praying, God, I want to pray for children, that we have children in this, in this 
body. That we begin to, that you begin to conform us into people, into men and women who are godly men and women, who can raise up a generation, um, from, from their youth in the ways of God and the truths of God and the knowledge of God. This is a year or something ago. Now we've got ten of them running around doing it. I mean, this is a, this is a sweet thing. You know, I, I look at Peyton, who isn't here. Little Peyton Grace, you know, who isn't here. Um, Jesse and Levi are actually down at, at his folks, um, spending some time with the baby, with the new baby, you know. The new, new, new little baby just born a couple weeks ago, for those who don't know. Um, and... You know, this is a this is a sweet answer to prayer. You know, this is a direct sweet answer to prayer. Now, does God care about little Peyton Grace? Did He want to bring little Peyton Grace into this world? Does He care about Jesse? Does He care about Levi and doing that? Yes, I'm convinced God wanted us to join in that celebration. That God wanted to be glorified in asking Him to to open the womb of Jesse. And in in you would say, well, that's not a very conventional prayer because that's kind of risky, you know. I mean, only God can do that. You know, we we should pray for things that maybe somebody else can come through on, right? So we can blame it on God and say, "Yeah, praise you, God." No, this is that's a it is a tough prayer. God, please open the womb of Jesse, and we prayed pretty fervently in a couple different times as a body for that. On Thursday night, we as men prayed. I remember one night, and, my, and actually, it's my son-in-law, and. He was pretty content in his own selfish little lifestyle, you know, liking it and going on about it, you know. And and I remember God really put in my heart, no, we need to pray that he'd open Jesse's womb. Um, and we did. And Levi's kind of like, you know, he's about half mad about it, you know, doing it, you know. What are you praying, you know, doing this? Right, Jeremy? I mean, he was about half sideways on the deal doing it. And and literally, I mean, now he's just mush, you know. I mean, little, it's just... It's sweet, you know, he was always like this, and now he's just, he, you know, can't put her down. What's that? Yeah, well, anybody else hold her when you go over there. I mean, it's just sweet, you know. I mean, that, last Sunday, my wife was saying, he, he was holding her and carrying her around, and he goes, well, what do I do now? And she goes, here, I'll take him, you know. And he goes, I didn't say that. I just said, what am I supposed to do next? I don't want to give him up here doing it, you know. It's pretty sweet, you know. But again, I, I see that as a, is a direct answer to prayer that we can share and all of our faith in God is built in that. Sandy, you know, I mean, Sandy's got um, some direct answers to prayer that we as a body have prayed for and, and joined in, in both her and Rick. And, and I look at the, you know, all of us feel bonded to Rick and Sandy because we joined in prayer um, for for Sandy's healing. Um, and, and here we are. And it's been a sweet, sweet time. So, I am confident, and I know, and that's what he says here. He says that thanks may be given by many persons. Okay, why? Because we've asked our dad. We've gone to our dad, you know? It's, got, it's, it's, our, it's, it's like dad who is, is a father, just like an earthly father. And, and, and we know one of us is a grown kid. One of the kids needs something, or one of the kids has need of something, or wants to do something. And, and it's one thing if there's just this interrelation and we're not involved in it and they're just going and doing their thing and he says, okay, you can go or gives them what he needs or whatever. It's another thing when we as a, as a family go, Dad, you know, um, you know, I think my sister or my brother really need this, you know. And, and when Dad, it, it, is Dad more loving or, or less loving because he doesn't? No, Dad is still Dad. But 
then when dad gives, it's a sweet thing that we share it. It's truly a sweet thing that we share. And God wants us to do that. God wants to be glorified. Why? Because he's egocentric? No. Because he, to the degree we recognize God for who he is. And to the degree we sit in a state of dependency on him for our lives, for everything, is the degree of blessedness, the degree of happiness that we personally will, will enjoy and will experience and will live in. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to be dependent on him, to recognize our need for dependency on him. He wants us to ask him so that he can bless us and we can see him as a loving father. Not because he's egocentric, because he, but because he wants us to know him for who he is. Okay? So it's important that we, that we pray. It's important that we're in tune with each other and each other's lives enough to know what afflictions, what sufferings we're going through so that we do pray. So that we do join in prayer for each other. So, I, I think it's a very important thing to realize that the power of prayer in a family, in a body, um, and, and the, the, real, the greater realization that we will come to about God. It's, a very, it's, not, it's not futile, it's not useless. And that isn't just a plug for Wednesday night prayer meeting, Okay. So, because Wednesday night prayer meeting is, and I, you know, I'm fine if just a few people. I, I personally, I'm a small group guy. You know, I would rather sit face to face with one person than have 50 around by far. Okay, so that that's that's my. So I'm I'm good with Wednesday nights. You know, praying and brothers and sisters coming together. The the thing that I would encourage is those of you who don't come, you're missing out. And and I, you know, I I agree. And, and just as a side on the deal. We eat together on Wednesday nights. We come together and, and somebody makes a meal. Usually John or, or my wife makes something to eat. So we have dinner together so you don't have to worry about dinner at 7. And then and then we, we spend time as a family sharing, sharing each other's lives and talking. Um, and sometimes it goes late. I'll, I'll say this, that if some of you guys are, are willing to come but don't want to stay, I mean, we often go till 10, sometimes 11, you know, doing it. And, it's a sweet time, I have to say, but, but let me just say this. If some of you are willing to come, but, but don't feel like you should stay out because you're getting kind of old and soft or something, then, then, if, but you're willing to come for an hour or two, we will make that work, okay? So I, I would encourage you, if you can come, you know, if we can eat from 7 to 7.30, I'm not a boy that likes to put a schedule down and just do that, but I'll try and do that, okay? That we, and then we can pray till, and be done, and you can, you're, you're, feel comfortable with leaving. Um, we'll do that. You know, we'll be comfortable with that. We might stay afterwards, hang out for a while, but that's alright. Um, so, same thing happens to some degree on Thursdays, and I'm always blessed, you know. Rick, Rick drags his fanny over there, you know, about whoop, you know, because he's been working hard all, all week, and he always has a, Intention, I've got to be out of here by nine, man. I've got to be out of here by nine. You can see it on his face, you know. And this is, this has always been kind of an unspoken rule that on, on Thursday nights when we get together as men, um, which is, you know, again, a, a blessed time. And from usually, you know, we start at seven and, um, we're never out of there before midnight, you know, doing it. But it's, it's, it's always been an unspoken rule, you know. If you're old like John or somebody, you can get up and leave, you know, at nine or something and, and go. So, and, and you're okay. We won't make fun of you being old, you know, doing it on it. So, 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 I love you. I love you, John. And, and actually, it's, it's, uh, you know, I can tell you this. I'd rather have my brothers there for half an hour than not have my brothers there. This is a, this is a 
time when it's very important time for us as men um, to share in each other's lives and, and become more intimate um, in our relationships. So, so, but it's a time, you know, in one of the sad things to me about going early and we try to do is that, you know, Thursday nights are a powerful time of prayer too. When we join together as men and pray for the body and pray for the needs of each other, um, that's a very, very important thing. And, and so I would encourage you guys to come and, and do it. And it's fine if you leave early. If you can be there for half an hour, that's um, better than not being there. So, so prayer. A couple other things that I would like to hit on here today. Um, let me finish reading this chapter and then we'll go. Verse 12. And this, this is a, this is a, this is a weighty deal too, and it comes contrary to a lot of cultural Christianity. For our proud confidence is this, and we can be assured that Paul was a humble man. We can be sure that Paul had a broken and contrite heart before God. We can be sure that he wasn't arrogant, um, that he wasn't self-righteous. So, that's not what he's doing right here, is expressing his own praise. But he is speaking very boldly about what his life and what their life, Timothy, I'm sure, is part of it. Um, Sylvanus was another teacher in there. What their lives look like. You are, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. Okay? This is, this is the truth about our lives. That in holiness, in holiness and godly sincerity, the word sincerity means purity. That in, that in holiness and godly purity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. What a statement. And that, that should be the statement of all of our lives. Okay? That, that Paul said, I can stand before God. My conscience is clear. The testimony of my life is this. Okay? And, and, and this wasn't a false assertion or a false statement. This was the truth standing there, okay? That in holiness and in godly purity, in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, that you might twice receive a blessing. This is Paul kind of going on for a little bit here about, this is a personal um, statement to the church in Corinth. Paul was intending, it appears, it's obvious, Paul was intending to go um, come by the church of Corinth and spend some time there on his way um, into Macedonia on his way going back and then he was going to spend some time in Macedonia and then coming back he was going to stop at the church of Corinth again and go on. Well, that didn't happen. Okay? And Paul had intended to do that and he'd let them know that was his intention to do that. Okay? My expectation is he was probably getting some criticism for that. I thought you said you were coming. I thought you said you were going to do this. Okay? I thought you said you were going to stop by or spend some time with us here. Isn't your word good? Aren't you honest? And so the next few verses are Paul's um, rhetoric and, and making some very strong statements about that this wasn't 
false, that this wasn't false intentions, that I wasn't, that I sincerely meant to do this. Um, but God called me and had other intentions. Okay? So that, that, that's what he's talking about here. And I have this, and, and in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Vacillating back and forth. That comes from the statement that your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay? Mean what you say. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him there is yes. They are true. There is no vacillating. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God. This, this, is, this is the part in the statement that I would... Because this is a description of us and our relationship. Um, we're not related in this case directly to Paul in an intimate relationship. That doesn't matter. This talks about how our relationship should look and what our relationship looks like in the Holy Spirit and with God. Okay. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. Established and anoint, and who who has sealed, who also sealed us, and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Okay. I I that's a let me finish. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Actually, that should be part of chapter 2, I believe. So, But because it goes on talking about that thing and continuing to describe it. Nonetheless, I, there, it's, it's an important... Do we understand what he means when he says God establishes us and establishes Paul with them, establishes us together in Christ and anointing? That he anointed us, who sealed us, okay? And who gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. As a pledge of what? This is important because what it does is describe our state. Is anointed, is established, is sealed. Okay? Is having the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. This is a important statement. I, I wanted, let, let me read Romans chapter 8 because I, I think that part of it anyway. Because I think that it's, it's Paul describing a lot of the same things again. And, and one of the things that he's describing here, and it's important to understand, remember last week, we talked some about, in suffering, we talked about it's really important, our worldview, what our worldview is. Okay? It's very important that our worldview, let me just make it this boldly. If our worldview coincides with our American view um, of life and of Christianity, we are, prob- we are almost certainly in deep trouble. Okay? 
the American view of Christianity is God has blessed this country and I can have a relationship with God and be blessed by him. And basically, he has blessed us in this life with prosperity, with things, with material blessings, with security, um, you know, with, with uh, a long life, with manifest destiny, um, the right to pursue and, and, and pursue my dreams and do what I want to do. And on top of that, I can, I, can, I can say the prayer, become a Christian, and be blessed in this life and have, have eternal security. What a sweet thing. You know, that sounds like a great deal. And, and that would be, to a large degree, the American view of Christianity. Um, that God adds blessing on top of our already born heritage blessing. And we're just blessed. And blessed is, the word blessed is, it's actually a good word. There, it means happy. Okay? It means happy. Now, that doesn't mean happy meal at McDonald's. You know? That, that, that doesn't mean giddy and giggly. That's a true, sincere happiness. Okay? And, and truthfully, truthfully, if we, if, if we stand back and look, what, what do we all want for those who we love and care for? I mean, we say it all the time. We're tragically confused because we, we don't ally our thought process with what it really means to be happy. We don't ally our thought process with God's view of what it means to be happy too often. We take it as the American view and, and we say, what do we want? What do we, as, as parents, what do we want for our kids? I just want my kids to be happy. Right? Well, there's a side of that that is true and right. I want my kids, now we could, we could cloak it in a different word and say, I just want my kids to be blessed. Okay? I want my kids to have a blessed life. Sweet. Now that sounds better. But on the other hand, happy is the same word, and we want happy. And all of us are seeking for that, right? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we choose the jobs? Why do we why do we work? We work so that we can have, so that we can be happy. We in our families, what do we want to be happy? There's a side of it that all of us would agree that it really doesn't matter what we have as long as we're happy, right? And 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 most of us would find that some of our most blessed times, some of our most happy time, or when we actually had very little. Right? I think all of us could probably look back at a time in our lives when we were, by all means, pretty poor, pretty destitute, pretty without, pretty without possessions or things, or security in those things. And we could find, depending on your state of existence, if you were, you know, I'm not counting the time that you were doing drugs and in a state of false euphoria and thought you were happy, you know. Um, that, that isn't part of the deal. That, but, I, I know that, that when I first married, you know, having nothing, owing nothing, you know, living with no electricity, running water, you know, 45 miles out of town, up in the mountains, um, caretaking 600 a- acres, neighbor more than a mile away, took a bath in the pond, in the spillway coming out of the pond when it was frozen, you know, I was pretty happy, you know, I was, bla- I was blessed, you know, it was a sweet time. Had nothing, had very little of anything, but I was blessed. It was a, it was a blessed time. Happiness isn't a a bad thing. Happiness is something that God promises us. Blessing is something that God promises us. The problem is that we pursue it wrongly, and we seek it wrongly, and, and we try to make ourselves happy. Okay, 
And God is very clear that it's not about making ourselves happy. Okay? In fact, He's very clear that, that happiness that comes from Him will be pretty counter to what it should look like outside. Jesus, Jesus made it very clear. And it's, it's hard in our culture. We tend to read over it and we don't want to read it and we don't want to address it. So we don't deal with it. The Sermon on the Mount is something that we think, man, Jesus was off on a tirade and he was, seemed pretty confused because he said a lot of things that don't make any sense. And they sure don't fit in with our cultural Christianity. So let's just kind of read over that. Maybe pull something out once in a while, like do not judge or something, you know. We, we, you know, we can pull out some statements out of this thing and, you know, have some strength and power to it, you know. But Jesus, Jesus, that's not Jesus' purpose. I'm convinced that Jesus was describing a, a, a child of God under the new covenant. Okay? Because the Sermon on the Mount is not for another dispensation in time. That would be inferred in places. That would be written down in commentary, even. That the Sermon on the Mount is not for this time. Couldn't be, because he's talking in ways that we could never live out or live in. Um, and, and, and yet, I'm convinced this is not at all true. That Jesus, when he was, he, this multitude of people came together, and Jesus sat down and described what the new covenant would look like. What the kingdom of God on earth would look like after his death and resurrection. What, what it would look like for people to be baptized into his death and be baptized into his resurrection and live in the power of the resurrection. In the power of God and the resurrection. So, that this is a... This is very, very important for us. I know that, that a couple years ago we spent probably six months um, this is after I'd spent probably quite a bit longer than that in the Sermon on the Mount on Thursday nights. <clears throat> and I'm pretty certain that it had an impact on all of us. Um, and, you know, it would be, it would be sweet to go back and, and spend a few weeks there again because it, you'll see how impactive it was. Because this is Jesus' description of what our lives should look like. What our lives can look like and what they should look like. Okay? Um, and there's some powerful, some of the most Prominent, <clears throat> obvious statements. Again, what's, what's the most what's the most quoted verse now? Do not judge, right? Misquoted from the Sermon on the Mount. That's not at all what he's talking about. Because the verse later he says, "Judge if someone's a dog or a pig, and do not cast your pearls before swine, or give what is holy to dogs." I would say that would entail some pretty strong judgment to determine, and 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 it, it it's. The, the context and what he was saying is do not judge hypocritically. Do not live one way and, and condemn another person. Um, do not live falsely. Live sincerely. Live truly. Um, let, your, let your boots match your mouth, I guess is my statement. Okay? That, that you do what you say. You live out what you say. But, again, one of the greatest quoted verses that misquoted is most of the Sermon on the Mount is. But Jesus makes a statement and I would just in, in chapter 5, right when he starts it. Okay? He starts his Sermon on the Mount and he sets a precedence here of, of what, the, what the life should look like, what, what the beginning of the life with God should look like, what, what the overall view of the life should look like. Um, and then there's a lot of details that happen in the next three chapters. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, God, of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the same words that Paul uses. 
Okay? Blessed are those who are afflicted, for they will be comforted. How happy is the translation. That's what blessed means. How happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. Right? I mean, come on. That's not American. I mean, we're not happy because in, in our mourning, we're happy because we don't have anything to mourn about. We're happy because our, we're going on vacation. We're happy because I just got a new this or that. We're happy because I don't have any problems in my life. Uh, now he says, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle. How happy are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. How happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. How happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How happy are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'd ask you to go read that and be troubled by it. Because it certainly goes completely contrary um, to our culture. Okay? This is what I'm buying into? This is Christianity? This is what we're signing up for? That doesn't sound like any fun at all. And he might say it's how happy it is, but do I believe it? You know, that, that, is, that is a very, very serious question. Jesus said, count the cost. Count the cost. Because it will cost you everything. It will cost you your life. But the inheritance of the saints is blessedness, is true happiness. And wait, so stand back a minute. Try to stand back. And think, wait, all the things which I believe will make me happy. God says they won't. The one who wishes to gain his life will lose it. The one who wishes to be fulfilled in his life and seeks to live his life to fulfill himself will lose his life. Eternally lose his life. The one who loses his life for my sake will gain it. Okay? The one who gives up his life will gain it. What is, what is the ultimate goal? It's a difficult one because of how we're pushed on. I mean, we're talking a, a car, we're talking a whatever, you know. I mean, you look at advertising. I mean, living in a, in a consumer-oriented society, I mean, we have to get people and we're, we're step back a little bit from it right now. But look at our advertising. Over 90% of advertising is non-informative advertising. Does not tell you about the product. Okay, what's it do? It says you will be happy. You will be happy if you have this car. You will be happy if you take a shower with this shampoo. You will be happy if you have these clothes. You will be happy if you, whatever it might be. If you go to this sizzler restaurant to eat or whatever. Right? So you will be happy. This will make you happy. And we're inundated with that. We're inundated that the things of the world will make us happy. Success. Money. Money. Material things. 
And, and, and it's, a, it's a lie. We live in this world that's an absolute lie. And we're inundated and consumed by it. And in, unless we aggressively, aggressively allow our minds and our hearts to be reconditioned, to be renewed by the truth of what God says, we will buy into that lie. Period. We'll buy into that lie on some level. Whether it's a hamburger McDonald's or a Cadillac or a yacht or a jet or an island in off Fiji. It doesn't matter. It's insatiable, never-ending, and a lie and a deception. But we will, and, and one of the sweet things I've always felt about living up here, there, some of my friends often said, you know, we've lived here for 25 years, so the kids were all raised here, um, that, you know, what you're raising your kids in this place that's not really real, you know, I mean, it's a bunch of rich people, and that's going to give them a false perspective. You know, the good thing about it is, is that, up, when dad says to him, yeah, money won't make you happy, my kids look at me and go, how do you know, dad? You know, you don't really have much money. You know, what do you mean money won't make you happy? If you really had some money, you might just make you happy, dad. You know, the, the sweet thing about living in this valley is there'll be people coming over to your house who do have money. There'll be clients that I build the house for that my kids will get to know. There'll be people that they are on the mountain with. There'll be people that they work with that do have money. And and where? How much money? Well, more than dad. That doesn't take much. But they have more than dad. And then what? And then they have way more than dad. And then they have way, way, way more than dad. And then they have, then they're literal billionaires. I mean, our friends, pretty close friends that come over to our house for dinner that are billionaires. Okay? Alright? And that's like a lot of O's, you know? That's like a bunch of them. And that's something I can't really comprehend. I mean, we talk about it, but it doesn't really mean much. When I was a kid, a millionaire was like, come on. I'm a billionaire, literally. And yet, are they happy because of it? No. They're not. I mean, they want to come over to my house and eat venison or something, you know? You need to take them shooting or do something that doesn't take money, really, to speak of doing it. The money does not make you happy. This is a valley. I've been sweet. It's been sweet, I think, for my kids to look because they can look around them and see there's people with more money than they can spend, and they're not any happier. Money doesn't make you happy. It's very important that we that we don't buy into that on any level, because God says money will not make you happy. He said He, he just told us how we'll be happy. Now I know that doesn't sound very good, but what do we really want to accomplish? We want to be happy. We want to be happy. And he says that if we share in the sufferings of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I agree. The buzzers are going off. That sucks. That doesn't sound good at all. No. We consider what God says. God created us. God created us for an intimate relationship with Him. God created us to be happy in our relationship with Him. Happiness is a good thing when it is a happiness that comes from God. The joy of the Lord is my strength. This is, a, this is an unwavering strength. This is a foundation that goes away. But it, unfortunately, we are inundated in this country more than any by what will make us happy. And we're lied to. 
we're like, love will make us happy. Right? I mean, that's a big one in our country. If I just fall madly in love, I'll be happy. Really. Talk to me in a year. You know? It, it, you know, it, it, it's a false illusion. And yet we still buy into it. Well, it wasn't the right one to be in love with. Well, let me fall in love with this one. Now I'll be really happy. Uh, talk to me another year. Yeah. It, it, it's a false reality that, that I know. Say a nice word. Kicked out of me for my whole life. Okay? Because being a diehard romantic, I was lied to about what would make me happy. Right? Being in love. I didn't care about anything. I was in love. I didn't care. I didn't care about things. Success, wealth, money, didn't matter. I just wanted to be madly in love and go live in the Yukon with my wife and kids and see you later. You know? And, and live happily ever after. Um, no, that wasn't going to make me happy. There was nothing that beat me up more in my life than a false understanding of romance. That having an ungodly perspective on what would make me happy. That being passionately, what I considered passionately in love, was a lie. It was a lie. Does that mean we're to be unfeeling, cold-hearted, not feeling people? Absolutely not. But the truth is that, that if we do not ally our values, if we do not line up our values, if we do not put the basis and foundation of our values um, in accordance, in, in line with the truth of God, we're not going to be happy. We're not going to be happy. And that's what we really want, is happiness. Okay? That's what we really want, is to be happy, to be blessed. So, the, the, the issue is, we need to look at what God says. God says that in the midst of suffering, we will truly be blessed. We will truly be happy. God says that when we stand for Him, unwavering, unquestionably, we will truly be happy. And that the state of this world, there was something I was reading this week, and I'll read Romans, Romans 8 a minute, because, the last part, because... We were talking last week about the, again, our perspective on the world and how we really, in our culture, especially American culture, I mean, if you lived in Calcutta, you would probably see the world as a fallen place. Okay? If you lived in Bangladesh and in, in, in the slums, you would probably see this world as a pretty fallen place. But in America, we don't see this world as a fallen place. We tend to see this place as the sky's the limit. You you want it you want it go after it. You can you can have it. And there's you can probably go after material things in this country and achieve most of what you want to do. But the lie is that this is a fallen world that is in in discord and disarray because of sin. And we are not going to be happy. We're not going to be fulfilled. There is only one, quote, fountain of youth. There is only one source of life. And it is not happiness. It is not exercise. It is not being in good shape. It is not being financially secure. It, 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 it's in none of those things. In fact, those things all fly in the face and go contrary to the truth of the gospel. 
Okay? He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. For God, the Comforter, will come alongside you and bless you and help you and hold you and heal you and sustain you. Okay? Not, we, we cannot bring happiness to ourselves. Okay? Besides death and obedience and complete surrender to God. Oh, that will bring happiness. Contrary to what this world may say, Romans 8, because I, I, Paul describes it better than I do. Okay? Verse 5. And this is, this is, again, I would ask you to just, to listen. Because this is God's perspective on happiness and on life. And at the end, he talks about the, all of creation groans under this burden of sin. That's a different view than what we have of America. That this whole world is in, is, is groaning. And God, God allowed it. God put it in subjection so that it would realize the necessity of redemption. For those of you, in verse 5, for those who, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, for for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, for those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for the mind set on the flesh, it's not happiness. It's not health. It's not prosperity. Those are all temporal illusions. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Oh no. We tag on Christianity right on top of whatever we do. Right? I'm a Christian too. I'm doing what I want to do. Living my life the way I want to live it finding success in the way that I wanted to find success, and I add God to it too. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. In that process, do you truly recognize God is God? Do you truly recognize God is absolutely worthy of your complete and total surrender? Do you really recognize God as Lord, as King? Someone to bow down in fear? Because if you don't, you're hostile towards God. If you do not recognize God for who God is, God is God. God is God Almighty. It doesn't matter how we think of Him. We are either going to acknowledge Him as God, realize our destitute state of existence, cry out for Jesus. And the right standing with God that we can have through Jesus. Or we're going to face the wrathful, angry, just God. That's the way life is. That is the way it is. To recognize God as God, to acknowledge Him as Lord, is a powerful statement. It's not just saying that I believe in a historical figure named Jesus Christ. To acknowledge, to call Jesus Christ Lord, is to call Him the supreme authority over my life. Completely and totally. My life is in subjection and submission to Him. So, outside of a recognition of God for who God claims to be, and the Bible is full of who He claims to be, outside of a recognition of who God claims to be, we are hostile towards Him. 
We are denying him, who he claims to be. Because the mindset in the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Remember the anointing? Right? Remember the establishment that he talks about in 2 Corinthians? What does that look like? However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, okay, if you are born again, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But, okay, but if the Spirit of Him, the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal, physical, fleshly bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Okay? If you're baptized into the death of Jesus, you're also baptized into the resurrection. And that resurrection power is at work in you. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the joy of the gospel. That's the sweetness of the gospel. Okay? That we are truly in a point of reconciliation. Not just someday when we're in heaven. We don't stand before a blind God. We stand before a redeeming God who has given the life-giving power of, re, of, of resurrection, the resurrection power of, that he put in Jesus Christ and raised him from the dead. He says that same power is at work in our mortal fleshly bodies to raise us from the dead. This is experiential reality. This is not just positional theology. This is to be experiential reality. Remember Paul said? He says that I can stand in a clear conscience that I live holy, right? In holy purity, in sincerity, I live before you. Okay? That's how we're called to live. That's how we're called, and God empowers us to do that. It's not me saying it, it's him. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, mine and yours, through the spirit who indwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Really. We're under, I thought it's just our free will. We can choose to follow God on whatever level we want to. And it's, it's, it's our choice because God gave us free will. And if I want to really go after it, that's fine. God's happy with me. But if I just want to sort of go after it, God's happy with me still. And it's fine. We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. That's a wild one. We are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Listen to this next statement. If indeed we suffer with him. I didn't write this. This is the inspired word of God. 
And if children, heirs also, heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider, this is Paul, having correct world view. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay? For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly. The effects of sin in the garden, the effects, the effects of rebellion to God, have, have completely... Death was not a part of this creation until sin entered this world. That's a wild statement. Adam and Eve would have lived forever. Death was not a part of this world. And death has many effects in all parts of creation. Right? Death is a death is an ugly thing. It's not really understandable. It's not that we just burn out. We have the potential to be regenerative. I mean, we do it all through the first part of our life and then the body says, no, no more. I'm not going to regenerate anymore. I'm going to quit. And, and there was a day, there was a day when it, we were still under what seemed to be a different environmental structure before the flood where they lived 800 years con- continuing to regenerate themselves during this. Death is not a part. Still, death affected them. They died. Okay? But that's because sin had come into this world. So all of creation struggles. This world, this is Paul's correct world view. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, vanity, not of its own will, but because of him who suggests, because God subjected it. Why? in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery, slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, the redemptive work of the Spirit in our life, the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our life, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption, the completion of our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been, sa- been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope, For what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Paul, 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 being Paul again. I believe that simply what he is saying, that's a world perspective. That this world is not, it is not as we view it in America. It's just our playground to enjoy and to be fulfilled in, to live out our lives to the fullest, in completeness. And we should live in whatever level of materialism, hedonism, narcissism, love, call it whatever you want save the planet, whatever it might be, that we can live our lives out in that and find happiness and contentment. God says, no, this whole world struggles under the effects of sin, under the effects of its rebellion to me. And the whole world waits, looking forward, eagerly waiting for the redemption of the sons of God and daughters of God. Okay? That this is a change, that we are new creatures, that we are born again, 
that we are no longer in bondage. Jesus says, I died to set you free from the bondage of sin. Okay? I died to set you free from the effects of sin, guilt, shame, separation from God. I died so that you could, through me, have the power of God effective in your life for redemption. Redeeming his creation back to him. Taking us back to an to a pre-sin edemic state of fellowship and relationship with God. As Jesus walked in. The effects of sin in this world, though, are going to be huge in that we no longer live in a garden where this was sweet time, just living with God, where there was no affliction and no persecution. Now we live in a world with affliction and persecution and suffering. Primarily, primarily, by those whose view of God is skewed. Because to stand on the truths of God is going to become against, just like Jesus was come against, just like the apostles will come against. Okay? There's going to be suffering. There is going to be persecution. But God says that we will be blessed in that. Jesus, Jesus felt those effects living in this world, right? Did Jesus sin? No. Was Jesus perfect love? Yes. Did, did every person and every encounter he had, did he act rightly? Yes, I believe he did. Did he act without sin? Yes. Was he, did he still suffer? Yes. He suffered unjustly. He suffered, he was falsely accused continuously. He was accused of being the, the son of Satan by the religious people. And this, that, that was, that was big. I was big in those days. They believed in Satan. So to call you the son of Satan instead of the son of God is a pretty powerful accusation. Was he the son of Satan? No, he's the son of God. He was God in the flesh, manifests here. And he suffered because of the effects of sin on this world. We will too. But we will truly be blessed. We will truly be happy. If we are willing if indeed we suffer with him. It's a strong verse. You know? And I would like to say it's just a can of whipped cream that we can all put on top of our dessert and it's all going to be happy. Let's sing happy songs and I'll just be happy. Um, that's not going to be the way it is. The difference is God made a body and, and we are beginning to experience that. I am truly blessed. I know I know most of us that have been participating in the body that he's forming here have truly been blessed by our ability to come alongside each other and comfort each other. Okay? The helper, paraclesis, the same thing that he, that he called the Holy Spirit, to come alongside, to be involved in each other's lives. We suffer so that I can understand God's comforting and I can share that with others who suffer. And we can truly be blessed by it. We can be happy in the midst of that. Joyous. And that's what we really want. I, I would challenge you to go back and look at what do I really want? Well, I want to be happy. Okay. Understandable. Do we believe God's way? Or do we believe in the world's way to happiness? Because that's really the question. And we don't get to modify our own rules. And decide. Jesus was pretty clear on God's way. Paul was pretty clear in God's way. The inspired word of God is pretty clear in God's way. 
And, and I, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about American Christianity. I'm talking about the Word of God and what it says. It's pretty clear on it. The world's pretty clear on its ways, although there's a myriad of them. But they contradict what the Bible says. And we have to make a choice. What do we really want? What do we really want? We really don't care about the new car. All of us have been through the experience. The new thing, once we have it, oops, kind of boring, you know, now. Big deal. I thought I'd be so happy, whether it's a new shirt or new shoes or whatever. It's empty. And it will continue to be empty as long as we live in this fallen world. There's one way to happiness. That's to share the sufferings of Jesus. And to be willing, because that, that, that is what's going to happen. We don't try to be masochists and cause suffering. We be obedient to God, and that will be the result. But we don't run from it. We realize that God will bless us. And we will truly be happy. So, I love you guys in spite of the... Uh, the don't, and, and, and you know, this is because I love you. I don't want to preach a false gospel. I don't want to say false... Your life will just be good and all good and all your tough times will go away. That would be lying. And I don't want to do that. Because I truly do want you to be happy. I truly do want you to be blessed. Let's pray. God, I am confident, I know, that you are fully able to eliminate suffering in whatever ways, whether it's when we when we are at the moment when we are born again when your spirit, you could take us out of this world and eliminate suffering. Whether it's sending a host of angels to decimate any affliction any coming against by others, any anguish caused by others, any pain, you could eliminate that. That, that isn't a question in your ability to eliminate suffering. But you don't choose to do that. You say, nothing will overtake us, but such as is common to man, and, and you guarantee us and it is true that you are faithful. You will not allow us to be tempted to go through something that we're not able to handle, but will with the temptation, will with the struggle, will with the affliction, find a way of escape that we can endure it. So we can be confident that we will not be overtaken. Now, that can mean death. Someday it will mean death. Almost certainly for all of us. But that's not a loss. That's still a triumph. And you lead us in triumph. In the midst of suffering and allowing us to suffer, there's you're a compassionate, caring, loving Father who wants us to be able to minister to each other and comfort each other. You love my brothers and sisters enough that you want to teach me through suffering submission and surrender and trust and faith in you and bring me great comfort so that I can comfort those others. Say that the reason I suffer isn't necessarily for me, it's for 
the brothers and sisters. And the reason my brothers and sisters suffer is not necessarily for them, it's for me. Because you love us enough. You realize that we are mere humans and limited in so many ways in our thinking and our feelings. That we need the comfort of our brothers and sisters in the midst of it. So you raise us up as a body that way and allow us to be. God, I thank you for loving us enough to not just put us in a little vacuum. To not just cause us and promote us being selfish, egocentric little whatevers. But I thank you for raising up a body to love on each other. I thank you that your purpose I thank you that your new covenant church is an assembly of body of believers intimately intertwined in each other's lives, ministering to each other and the gifts that you've given us. I thank you that you call us to exhort, to encourage, to come alongside each other. I thank you for that. That's a I don't know what I would do without that myself. And I thank you for that. But God, please pierce our hearts with your truth. It's so hard for us when we're inundated for some of us a lot of years. We're old with lies, with deception about what will make us happy, what will bring us joy. And it's hard for us to, with so little input, our own fault, so little input, to recondition our thinking, to renew our thinking, to renew our mind. So God, please help us. Please help us. We trust that your spirit, the paracletos, the, the, the helper, God, we pray that he will help us understand. That he will overcome this saturation of lies and deception in our lives. And shine your light. Shine your light, God, please. And chase the darkness away. And give us your truth about what would make us happy. That dying to ourselves, not self-gratification. That dying to ourselves will make us happy. That's where we'll find joy and peace when we recognize you for who we are. It's not why we do it. We do it because we recognize that you are God. And you are worthy to be served. And there's only one way to miss your judgment. There's only one way. And that's through Jesus sharing in his death. But I thank you that you're a loving Father who now gives us the great blessings, the full blessings, the richness of the inheritance of the saints. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you're such a loving and gracious God. And I thank you that you do it through my brothers and sisters and make it real tangible. God, I ask you to build that in this body. I know you are. And I ask you to build it in this body. Protect those who aren't here today, sick, away, there's a bunch. Please protect them, God. Protect my brothers and sisters as they go out. Protect the truth. Anything that isn't truth, wash it. God, please. Teach us what love is. Teach us to love each other. And be glorified, God. Amen. Yeah.